You are listening to Tough Island, Maine on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 on your FM dial, serving mid-coast, down-east, and central Maine, and on the internet at WERU.org. Warning, these true stories may not be appropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. Some names have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty. Chapter 13 My name is Crashberry, and for two years, when I was a much younger man, I lived on Matinicus, Maine's most remote inhabited island. A couple of years living in a fish shack didn't make me an expert on Matinicus, But it was a long enough immersion to recognize the distinctive nature of the island, to see beyond the myth and the hype, to study a unique society with a wannabe writer's brain, filtered through a thick lens of drugs, (laughs) youth, and hard work. My time on Matinicus taught me an important lesson. Be careful on Tough Island. Captain Edwin and Nan dropped me off on Route 1 in Rockland, Maine, November 1st, 1992. My cardboard hitchhiking sign proclaimed, Destination Portland, poet, will rhyme for ride. I was tall and strong, with long hair and a long beard. I looked like a cross between Charles Manson and Jesus Christ. The first ride gave me a lift as far as Walderboro. Thank you very much. Uh, I hope you have a nice day. The second ride was a dream come true. I was standing on the foot of the hill across from the shop and save when a primer gray GTI stopped for me. A beautiful blonde woman in her early 20s sat behind the wheel, and no one sat in the back seat. Seemed like the beginning of a fantasy or a pornographic film. Hi there, I'm going to Portland. Hop in. Uh, yeah, thank you. To be blunt, she was hot. Her name was Ginger. She had a great laugh, sparkling blue eyes, luscious lips, plus a small canister filled with potent purple weed. Seriously, you should not be picking up hitchhikers, especially when you're alone. I admonished her for picking up a fella, especially when they look like me. Okay, I promise never to pick up a hitchhiker again. Great, thank you very much. Now I have a question for you. Do you smoke pot? Yes, I smoke cannabis. Would you like to get high? Yes, I would like to get high.
and we did in a rest area with a scenic view. Seems like there's lots of birds here at the Sherman's Lake rest area. And I talked and talked, and I recited a long narrative poem about rejected refugees, and told her about my time in Haiti. Then I told her about Buzz shooting at my shack the night before. Oh my, <laughs> that must have been awful. She said, putting her hand over her mouth to stifle a laugh. But you're fine now. So, actually, it kind of makes for an exciting story. Then she giggled. <laughs> she looked over at me and smiled. Are you in a hurry? Uh, no, I'm not in a hurry. I felt a stirring from within. I just got to be down to Portland by around five. And the mutual attraction was growing. Why don't you pack another bowl? That sounds great. <coughs> wow. This is some good reefer. Eventually, we continued down Route 1. The soundtrack was New Wave, and we were having a great time. We laughed, we oh joked, uh, and I felt wicked comfortable awful. with her. <laughs> and when we arrived in Portland, Ginger seemed disappointed to drop me off. It was so nice to meet you. What a fun ride. I agree. That was a real blast. Really nice to meet you. Write down my number, Mr. Poet. 772-4646. You should call me. And I hugged her. And for a second, I realized how easy it would be to change plans and stay with Ginger. No one would know where I was. And Alice would be stuck at the Village Cafe with our parents, wondering when I was going to appear. In this alternate timeline, I'd spend the rest of the day and the night and my life with Ginger. Smoking purple ganja and listening to New Wave with a blonde beauty. We'd fall in love. We'd have kids someday and laugh when we told them the story of Mom picking Dad up on the side of the road when he looked like a cross between Charles Manson and Jesus Christ. Instead of going with Ginger, though, I said goodbye. She drove away. And I never called her. Good evening. Welcome to the Village Cafe. Uh, hi there. We have reservations. Barry, table of six. Uh, Non-smoking, please. Right this way. Still high from the ride, I couldn't understand why my storytelling during the Italian feast at the Village Cafe in Portland wasn't a hit. And then Shu threatened to slug me if I didn't bring him out to his skiff so he could head into Rockland in the middle of the night. Alice seemed very nervous, being around my parents knowing that later we'd be revealing the big news. And then the guy fired off his shotgun right at my shack. And Alice's mom, whose family hailed from Matenicus, was unusually quiet after she heard the details about the previous night. He's actually a very nice boy. I've known him since he was a baby. Chu was her cousin, or second cousin, and she was quite embarrassed by my tales of island hooliganism and tried to tell my parents that such behavior was rare. 
I've never heard of such shenanigans. My mom nodded like she understood, but I figured she was remembering their visit to the island and the fellow whose truck windows got shot out. Martinicus is a very special place. We skipped dessert. Uh, check please. And my future in-laws invited us all to their Winnebago parked in the Village Cafe parking lot. Over coffee and tea. I've been accepted by the University of Southern Maine. That's great news. In January, I'll be an English major. Congratulations. So I'm leaving the island. And we're going to move in together. And then, next summer, we're going to get married. Both sets of parents acted pleased and issued congratulations. But there was tension in the air. And the evening ended soon after. My parents were tired and wanted to get to their motel. And Alice's parents were also eager to hit the road. Alice and I drove to her place in suburbia. We made love. She fell asleep in my arms while I thought of Ginger. Okay, okay, I promise never okay, again okay, to pick up a hitchhiker. Captain Emery and I were drinking moonshine. You know what ruined this island? Radio. Radio ruined this island. Captain Emery was slurring his words because the orange juice mixed with moonshine from his basement still was powerfully strong. Back before radio. And he was drunk. We had dances, Fridays and Saturday nights. We were drinking at his kitchen table in his house up in the middle of the island. Sometimes we'd even go over to the dances on Vinyl Haven or North Haven. Captain Emery, in his early 80s, remembered the days before radio. Back then, we'd have church socials and we'd play games. And play cards. He paused to take another long sip of his moonshine cocktail. <sighs> he snorted and shook his head. We'd sing songs gathered round the piano or the organ. He pointed at me. That radio comes along with its news and its music. And it's stories. Captain Emery was a funny-looking fella, short and stocky with big ears and a very long nose. He sort of looked a little like the homesick alien in the movie E.T., and I'd heard from other islanders that his reputation as a sexual swordsman was well-known across Penobscot Bay. The people just stay at home and sit in front of a box. I'm not going to dances anymore. <laughs> Even as a rugged elder, he mischievously flirted with females of all ages. Girls swooned under the spell of his twinkling eyes and crooked grin. They all wanted to hug him and squeeze him 
and he always obliged. Nowadays, nobody does nothing together at all, and everyone hates everybody else. Captain Emery's fish house was next to Captain Edwin's fish house. Captain Emery was the oldest man still lobstering on Matinicus. His traps were made from spruce, not wire. His arms were huge from a life of hard labor, and his brain was filled with the knowledge of natural history. He understood what the clouds and the birds had to say, and I really liked learning from him. That's why we were drinking his moonshine. We spent the whole day down at the shore, jacking up his fish house. Before Captain Emery showed me how. Okay, a, a little higher. A little higher. All right. Stop. Right there. I had no idea that two humans could lift a building. He appreciated my help and wanted to repay me with cocktails and conversation. Radio. Radio ruined this island. One wicked windy morning, I was working in a huge shop about a hundred feet from Captain Emery's and Captain Edwin's fish house. It was an illegal building constructed without state permits or permission, and upstairs were unfinished apartments. Downstairs was a big open space shared by several lobstermen, a giant workshop, to make some extra cash, I was bending wire and building traps for another captain. Bending wire was a newly learned skill that I enjoyed, and a half a dozen other men were involved in similar trap building related tasks. To me, the labor felt ancient and traditional, despite the thump, and chortle and hiss of the compressor that sporadically drowned out the rock and roll coming from the radio. The Guru is rocking your workday commercial free, live and local, on Maine's rock station, WPLM. Philly's truck came speeding down the dirt road and screeched to a stop in front of the shop. Philly was the 65-year-old ne'er-do-well father to a couple of the meanest outlaws that ever called Matinicus home. Philly climbed out of his pickup truck slowly because Philly didn't do anything fast except drive his truck. Truth was, Philly's brain was dim. Islanders blame the fact that his mom and dad, allegedly, were brother and sister. Philly's torpor could also have been caused by drugs because he was a pillhead. A lover of Valium, he popped him like candy. His speech was sluggish and his sense of humor was practically non-existent. Philly constantly seemed to be on the verge of falling asleep while standing up. Listless, listless, lethargic, lethargic, and droopy-eyed. Droopy this morning, his mission must have been urgent because he almost sprinted into the shop. Everybody! He yelled, 
then pause to wheeze. <laughs> Let's go! What sort of emergency would make Philly move so fast? Was there a house on fire? An injured child? A shipwreck? A sinking boat? No. <laughs> WrestleMania is on the satellite dish! He hollered, WrestleMania! <laughs> Within a minute, oh, WrestleMania. WrestleMania. the place was almost empty. The gang filled the back of Philly's pickup truck, WrestleMania. 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 and raced up to his house in the middle of the island home to a swimming pool-sized satellite dish. WrestleMania's on the satellite TV! Not me, though. I stayed down on the shore and kept building traps, listening to the radio, and I switched it over. For joining us. You got walls and a roof. W-E-R-U. Community Radio, 89.9 on your FM dial. I was lucky to have been accepted to the University of Southern Maine because, honestly, my poetry was getting worse and worse. I called it free verse when it was merely lazy and I had practically stopped using punctuation. My big beard, round glasses, flannel shirt, and typewriter didn't help me understand grammar, sentence structure, or onomatopoeia. I needed to learn those things in order to become a poet. Metaphor versus simile. And that wasn't going to happen while lobstering on a rock 20 miles offshore. With lots of encouragement from Captain Edwin and Nan, I made preparations to head to the big city and the university. The University of Southern Maine in Portland and Gorham. To a louder, busier life. Thanks to the GI Bill, I had money for tuition. And thanks to Alice, we're going to move in together. I had a place to stay. I didn't want to attend the university looking like a lumberjack. I'd visited the Portland campus the month before, and it was filled with hotties and hipsters. I decided to get rid of my long beard before I left the island. And my long beard and flannel shirt wouldn't be in style for a couple more years. Five nights before I moved off Matinicus, Captain Edwin and Nan invited me up to their house for supper. I trimmed and then shaved off all my whiskers before showering. When I sat down at the dinner table, my skin was red, scraped, and bloody. You look about five years younger, Captain Edwin said. Like you're 18, like a college freshman. I should have waited to shave, though. When Captain Edwin and I went out to haul traps the last couple of times, the sea spray iced up on my face. I wish I hadn't shaved my beard. And the January wind froze my cheeks. I think I might have frostbite. 
On my last day on the island, I hurried to pack. A charter plane was scheduled for 1 p.m. to pick me up and to pick up my boxes full of stuff. Books, mostly. And lots and lots of bad poetry and failed short stories on typewritten sheets of paper. Plus my sea bag filled with fisherman clothes mixed with remnants of Coast Guard and Russian sailor uniforms and Grateful Dead wear tie-dye shirts, tie-dye shirts, tie-dye shirts, cut-off jeans, cut-off jeans, cut-off jeans, cut-off jeans, and I had my boots, my oil skins, stereo, typewriter, tea kettle, and toaster oven. Almost all of it fit into the car I borrowed from Captain Rick Coles that I was driving. And then, as I was headed up to the airport via Harbor Point Road, a station wagon surprised me. What in the hell? My pal Tommy pulled out of a path in the woods that motor vehicles almost never used. Holy sh- I swerved to avoid collision and drove off the road and over a cliff. It was a small cliff. Holy oh my friggin' word! It was a small cliff compared to the others nearby. Five feet to the left or five feet to the right, and I would have plummeted to my death. The car landed about 10 feet below road level, nose down on a dirt-covered ledge protruding from the rocky slope that ran down into the cove. I was unscathed but shook up and climbed out of the car, and I clambered up the rocks and crawled onto the side of the road. And Tommy was surprised to see me alive. Oh, I thought for sure you were going to be dead. We jumped into his station wagon and headed up to Max Ames' house. Max was a badass biker, but he was a sweet fella at heart, and he owned a backhoe. Luckily, he was home. Ten minutes later, we were back at the scene of the accident. We attached chains to the rear end, and Max plucked the car up with the backhoe and dragged it back onto the road. Max, having heard I was moving, didn't want a dime. Good luck to you, kid. I drove to the airport and unloaded my boxes undamaged by the crash. I made one more trip to my shack for odds and ends. Well, thanks for all the memories. You've been a really great shack. I really appreciate you. I'm going to miss you. Best place I've ever lived. So far. Take care of yourself. And then, back to the airport... with a couple of minutes to spare. Huh. Still no sign of the airplane. I bet I have time to get high. One more time. One more.
I bet you I have enough time to get high. I bet you I have enough time to get high. I bet you I have enough time to get high. One more time. The single engine Cessna from Owl's Head landed on the runway. Did you call for a taxi? <laughs> the pilot had removed the extra seats on the mainland to make room for my many boxes. Together, we quickly loaded the plane, then strapped in and took off. Hey, do you think you could fly over the lower harbor and Captain Edwin's fish house before we head to the mainland? Sure thing. Hang on tight. And that's when I waved goodbye. So I left Matinicus and went to the University of Southern Maine and moved into an apartment with Alice in Gorham, down the hill from the campus, and I got a job at the local health food store. Living on the mainland and returning to school took some dramatic adjustment. Rules and laws were enforced, and social norms were expected to be followed. No longer could I just stop on the side of any road and take a leak. <coughs> And smoking pot in public was not acceptable. Yet, drunken loudness was frowned upon, and daily showers were considered essential. Alice and I married, then divorced soon after. I quit the university after a couple of years when I landed a gig as a reporter at a weekly newspaper in suburban Portland, then went on to a life of print and radio journalism mixed with bouts of hard labor. I lived on other islands, drove other boats, and ate lots more lobster, and did lots more drugs, and did lots more drugs, and did lots more drugs, and did lots more and I always compared everything to Matinicus. I've returned to Matinicus twice since leaving in January 1993, and I'll tell you about those trips next time in the final episode of Tough Island, Maine. Tough Island is written, produced, and voiced by Crash Berry. That's me. Tough Island, Maine is based on the book, Tough Island. Visit CrashBerry.com for other episodes of Tough Island, Maine, for more information about my books, or my podcast, Devils in Dirtbags. Season 1 is a true crime investigation of evil priests and their protectors. And remember... Be careful on Tough Island.